would love to do time travel. Anyone else? Like time travel would just be one of the greatest things that could happen. And if I ever invent or get to do time travel, I'm going to show up right now. That would be legit, wouldn't it? If I actually showed up, like it worked, but it didn't. But here's the deal. I would love to get like, say, Abraham Lincoln, right? Like Abraham Lincoln, I'm going to bring you to our day and I'm going to show you the things that we have, the technology that we have. Like, I mean, just trying to get in your mind, explaining to Abraham Lincoln that we have all the world's information, everything that ever existed information-wise in our hand. Like, like with this box, we can look up everything. And that might not be true. We can look up everything. But instead, what we do with this is take pictures of our food and argue with strangers, that's what we spend more time, but we have all the information in our hands. And so, so what we're going to see this morning is kind of this time travel idea. But, but what the author, what the preacher of Hebrews is trying to do is to paint this picture of, man, what would it look like? How would you explain this freedom that is found in Christ to those that lived in the old covenant? How, how would you paint this picture? How would you explain it to them? Because they would, they would never believe what the true reality of Christ is. Under the sacrificial system that we'll develop this morning, they would just have no framework for the freedom that is found in Christ, the presence that we have in front of God Almighty. But as much as we take for granted just the cell phone and the common grace that God has given us, I think that we have taken advantage of the presence of God and the freedom of access we have to him. It's just become normative to us, but once upon a time, that was not normative. That was groundbreaking. They could not fathom the freedom, the presence, the privilege that we have to access God the way that we do. So so here's my all cards on the table. Here's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see and understand through the text, through the book of Hebrews, through the author's intent, that we cannot... We cannot take for granted the presence of God in our lives. That we cannot take advantage of or forget about or um, just assume away the access to the most high God that we have. Because I think, I think we do. It just becomes so normative that it just rolls off our back like it's not a big deal. Oh yeah, oh yeah, God is great. But what they had to do in the sacrificial system was so much work to get to him, and they can never actually fully get to him. So, so with that in mind, let's go to Hebrews 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. And we're going to read 9, 1 through 10. We're going to pray. And then we're going to kind of work through this idea of access and presence to God. Hebrews 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which were golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables, the tablets of the covenant. Excuse me. Verse 5. And it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this, this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only or deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let's pray together. Father, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Would we get a clear picture, clear understanding of how lucky we are to live at this point in redemptive history? God, would we no longer take for granted the access that we have to you? Would we no longer take advantage of the presence of you in our lives, Father? Would we see it clearly this morning and would it change our hearts, our minds, and our lives? It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, last week as we worked through uh, chapter 8, we really had to deal with sin. And not sin in this theoretical concept, because we all have walked into this place last week and this week, understanding that at some level we're, we're sinners. At some level we, we, we re- recommend and we go to the words of Paul, right? That, that we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we want to do. And, and so we understand that. But last week, I pressed really hard on us based on the text that you're not just a good person that occasionally sins, right? That we, that we believe in this idea of total depravity, that we sin because that's who you are. That an apple tree doesn't produce oranges in the same way that a good person just does occasionally sin. That an apple, apple tree produces apples just as a sinner produces sin. That's who we are. And the massive shift that, that we've kind of come away from is the sacrificial system. So we went back into Leviticus and looked to understand uh, why sin was so um, heavy for the people of the Old Covenant. It's because they had to make their own sacrifices, It's because they had to put their hands on the goat as they slaughtered it. It's because they had to get the blood out of the goat. They had to shed the blood for their sin. That There was a reality, there was a weightiness to their sin. They couldn't just ignore it or act like it didn't happen. We have that luxury. We can just kind of sweep it under the rug. Oh, it's, it was just a one-time deal. It's, it's not that bad. I mean, who even says this is actually sin, right? I mean, the book is old, the Bible, whatever. Like, that's not really, that might have been sin then. It's not really sin. We can just justify this. But they couldn't. So there was this weightiness of sin that last week we just had to sit in and understand. So we used the quote from Thomas Watson, that till sin be bitter, Christ not be sweet. And so I just made the argument that, look, if your relationship with Christ isn't where you want it to be, more often than not, and I would argue 100% of the time, but I'll give you a little bit, maybe 95% of the time, it's not actually Christ that's distant. It's your lack of seriousness, seriousness about your sin that is hindering your relationship with Christ. So until we hate our sin, Christ is never going to become sweet. Until we see our sin for the reality of what it is separating us from the God of the universe, We're never going to have that right relationship with Christ because we're going to be belittling it and pushing it aside. And Christ is going to be saying, hey, uh, I, I went to the cross for that sin. I was beaten for that sin. I was murdered for that sin. So don't belittle that sin in my presence because it cost me my life. 
And so we're unknowingly belittling the sin that murdered Christ. So, so last week we dealt a lot with this idea and with repentance. And we ended with this Oswald Chambers quote that says, Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that and means it. The surest work that God is at work in your life is when you confess your sin and you mean it. Now, confession of sin is not something that our culture really appreciates or likes. And I'm not talking like Catholic, go confess your sin to the priest. I'm just talking in community. I'm talking to the God of the universe first and to those around us. I mean, just just this morning, lest you think that I am the perfect pastor, just this morning I had to pull my son aside and apologize and say, hey, buddy, I sinned against God and I sinned against you because I spoke too harshly to you and I did not intend to. That's the confession of sin. Our children should regularly hear us say that. Our spouse should regularly hear us apologize, repent, confess our sin. That should be the marks of a believer. I mean, can you just imagine the political landscape, how much it would change if confession just happened? I mean, when was the last time you heard a political leader say, hey, I was wrong and I'm sorry? Me neither. Right, so this idea of confession of sin only happens when we understand the depravity of our hearts, that there's nothing good in us because of the sins of Adam, we're all cursed. And the wages of sin are death, but Christ has redeemed us. He has saved us from that. So last week we had to deal with sin, but this week we're gonna kind of take that next step and deal with presence. So look with me again at verses eight and nine. Romans nine, eight and nine. Uh, Not Romans, Hebrews, excuse me. Because there's going to be this sentence here that isn't going to quite make sense yet, but it's going to tease out this argument of where we're going to land. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, I know, I'll get there. That doesn't make sense yet. Verse 9. Which is symbolic for the present age. So the ways of the sacrificial system of the tabernacle are not yet opened, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, if you're a thinker in any sense, you should start scratching your head a little bit. Because we know that that the book of Hebrews was written around 54, 55 AD, about two decades after Christ ascended into heaven. So what in the world is the author of Hebrews saying that this is the present age? That the sacrificial system, that the temple is still happening, this is still the way it works even though the new covenant has been ushered in by Christ, shouldn't the old covenant be done, the new covenant be established? So look just up a couple verses at the end of chapter 8, verse 13. Because this is the verse that sets the stage for chapter 9. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's ready to vanish away. So, so this author is writing in between this really hard season of 33, Christ has ascended into heaven. He's been murdered. Um, he's been beaten. He's been abused for the sake of our sin. AD 70, the temple of Jerusalem is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. So all the sacrificial systems, even if they wanted to continue, couldn't because the temple has been destroyed. So they're kind of in this awkward season between the ascension of Christ and the actual destruction of the temple, the sacrificial system. They're in this in between. 
And so he's writing to them, he's imploring to them, he's pleading with them that the ways of Christ is better than the sacrificial system. And this has been the theme of Hebrews throughout. We've seen this time and time and time again. He's writing to these people, this house church in Rome that is being abused, and the abuse is not going to stop. It's going to ramp up. Nero's going to get into rule, and it's going to go crazy. And that suffering, persecution, murder is going to continue for these churches in Rome. And he's writing to them going, hey, remember, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than your suffering. Jesus is better than Roman rule. Jesus is better than the Jewish customs that you came from. Jesus is better than your own life. Jesus is greater than all of this. And this, frankly, is why we picked this book, because in this landscape that we're in, we, we need to hear this, that Jesus is bigger, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better than all things forever and always. But they're in this tension, right, of like, man, but, but we understand the sacrificial system. That, that, that it's still available. It's still an option for us. So, so that makes more sense to us to, un, to go to the temple, to sacrifice animals because it, it feels better that we can put that sin to rest. So maybe we should just fall back to our Jewish traditions. And the author's pleading with them, going, here is why Jesus is greater. Here is why Jesus is better. But, but to understand that, let us look back at verse 1. Because we've got to understand the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all that's going on so that we can see the temptation to fall back into that and the shortcomings that the law actually provided. So, so if we go back to verse 1, we'll see... The first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place for holiness. So uh, just real quick, raise your hand if you're doing the chronological Bible reading. All right, th- awesome. Praise God for you guys. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're actually uh, on track. But if you are, get it. If you're not, like me, get it. All right, we got this. We'll get caught up. Right? So, so we've been reading about this. We've been reading about the Exodus. Uh, we're working into Levit- Leviticus. We're starting to understand the reality of what's happening here. But I think because of where we live in redemptive history, meaning after Christ's death and ascension, seated at the right hand of God for us, interceding for us on our behalf, we miss the importance of the tabernacle and the tent and what's happening. So the tabernacle stood as the epicenter of the old covenant worship. I mean, the details of this, and you you read about this in Exodus, the details of what was required, what it looked like, how it was set up, how it was decorated, was all um, keenly listed out for the people of God, and all of it was representative. For example, um, it mentioned Aaron's staff was there, and this is a representation of how God kept his people alive in the wilderness and how God chose Aaron for priesthood. It obviously talks about the tablets, right? The law, the Ten Commandments. It was God's covenant with them. The golden urn holding the manna, showing God's sustaining care for 40 years in the wilderness. That God just raised, rained manna from heaven. This is how uh, they, they gathered this in a jar to remember God's faithfulness for them. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God's steadfast love for them. And the cherubim that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant were heavenly creatures to whom God gives specific tasks. And this task here was guarding the holy of holies, guarding the presence of God in this most holy room. Now listen, uh, I am a visual person. Anyone else? So as I'm reading this, as I'm studying this, trying to work out, man, you've got like, 
this outer courtyard where the, the people of God could enter, and then you've got the holy place where just the priests could enter, and then you've got like the most, the holy of holies, the most holy place where, where only the high priest could enter. Just what does this look like? So uh, here's the second thing that I don't normally do, but I think it might be beneficial. Um, there's this video that, that outlines and kind of shows what the tabernacle would look like. So let's watch this real quick just to get a better understanding of what this tabernacle, what this space looked like. Sound good? Good. The tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8 through 9, God spoke to Moses, saying, Make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell in the midst of them, according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its equipment, and so you will do. This portable temple was built in the wilderness by the Israelites, circa 1450 B.C., after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. Moses was given specific instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 26. The tent itself sat within a curtained enclosure that was supported by pillars. This courtyard was about a quarter of the size of an American football field. Several slaughtering tables stood within the court of the tabernacle, along with the bronze laver and the bronze altar. The tabernacle itself was a rectangular-shaped structure. Its roof consisted of multiple layers of animal skins and linens. An outer covering of tachash skin, which may have been porpoise, beaver, or a type of leather. A covering of ram skin dyed red. A curtain of goat's hair. And finally, a curtain of fine linen. The interior of the tabernacle was divided into two sections that housed a number of sacred objects. The first section, the holy place, contained the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Beyond a veil lay the holy of holies, or the most holy place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was the first temple dedicated to God and the first resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. It served as a place of worship and sacrifices during the Israelites' 40 years in the desert and their subsequent conquest of the land of Canaan. This transportable house of worship was eventually replaced by a more permanent structure, King Solomon's Temple. Was that helpful? There we go. To see and kind of understand, all right, did that guy's voice not also make you go back to sixth grade where they roll in the TV and the boring history videos started? Uh, anyways, that was just so helpful for me to see. Here, here's where the people of God could come, right? They could come to this courtyard. They could make the sacrifices, but they could not go into the holy place, and they definitely could not go into the most holy place. And, and so this brings us to verse 5 then. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And, and so what the author, what the preacher of Hebrews is just saying is like, hey, we, we could chase this rabbit, but, but let's stop it. Let's keep going with my thought here. And this brings us to verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, without, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of people. So, so we see clearly here that where the Ark of the Covenant is, the most holy of holies, only one man can go. 
Only the high priest can go. And we've studied and read and talked about before that he would actually walk in with a rope wrapped around him in case he walks into the presence of God and God ultimately kills him for unrepentant sin. They can just drag him back out. That sewn into his garment were bells. He'd have to walk around in there so they would know, hey, he's still moving. He's still good. Bells stop. Rope goes limp. Drag him out. Next one's up. Who's going? Right? I mean, that was the tradition. That's what happened because the presence of God, the holiness of God is real. There's strength. There's power there. And so we have to understand here what's happening when they go in, uh, and, and it talks about here in verse 7, the unintentional sins of the people. Now, now what does this mean, the unintentional? Because we, uh, in our language, have the sins of commission, the sins of omission, right? Like, I did what I shouldn't have done, and I didn't do what I should have done. That's the kind of two framework for sin that we have. But here we see that the priest goes in for the unintentional sins of the people, now, right off the gate, you go, wait, 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 like, unintentional sins, how can we be held accountable for the unintentional sins? If we didn't mean to do that, how can we be held accountable? Um, it's February right now. Do your taxes wrong, and you will learn what happens. I didn't mean to. The IRS doesn't buy that. I didn't know that was a law. Sorry, audited, pay us money. That is this idea. So, so I'm going to read quite a longer quote because... It's R.C. Sproul, and he explains things way better than I ever could. But here's what he says about the unintentional sins. It kind of helps our minds understand this a little bit. Unintentional sins and sins of omission were dealt with in the sin offering. These were sins people committed in ignorance of the Mosaic Code or when they forgot those laws they had learned. Sins committed with a high hand were not covered. This is from Numbers 15. A high-handed sin is one a professing believer commits boldly and defiantly, not caring about the consequences and feeling no guilt about it once committed. It is a sin people commit fearlessly as they shake their fists literally or figuratively at the Lord. A sin committed with a high hand is not always the same thing as an intentional sin. All high-handed sins are intentional, but not all intentional sins are high-handed. So even though these sins of unintentionality uh, were, were uh, forgiven, there was one sin that could not have been forgiven for the people of God. It was the high-handed sin. It was the intentional sin, but, but he, he lays a distinction here, and I think to me the best example of this is David and Bathsheba, right? I mean, David intentionally sinned. King David intentionally pursued this woman that was not his wife. He laid with her, intentionally had her husband murdered, covered up. It was all intentional. But, in the words of R.C. Sproul, was it high-handed? Was it him shaking his fist at God? Or was it just a really dumb mistake? So you start to see this clearly. That's why King David could have been forgiven, because it was intentional but it wasn't high-handed. But nevertheless, all these sins could be forgiven unless you intentionally shook your fists at the heavens. Now, the infrequent nature of the high priest walking into the Holy of Holies really showed one thing. The separation of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the courtyard, and even outside of the tabernacle really only go to show one thing. The presence of power of God is real. The holiness of God exists. And for the people of God in the Old Covenant, they could never get closer than two, two degrees removed from the presence of God. 
Now just let that sink in for a second. We're going to get here in a minute. But that is so foreign to us that they could only get two degrees away from the presence of God. And only because of the priesthood, only because of your genealogy could you even get into the holy place. And we don't have time to go into the qualifications for the most high priest to get into the holy of holies. One person out of the entire tribe of Israel could actually go into the presence of God. And the massive takeaway is the holiness of God, which is something our culture just forgets about. Now let's keep reading because this ties back into the problem that we saw. Verse 8, by the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. As long as the holy place is there, then the most holy place is still there. But now that if the tabernacle has been destroyed, the presence of God is available. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, be, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, so what is this getting at here? That all of this for the old covenant was external that they never quite knew where they stood with God, that it was never final. The finality of it never actually sat in with them, therefore their conscience was always wondering, am I right with God? Has God forgiven me? Is God pleased with me? Is God okay with me? Was my sacrifice enough? Is it frequent enough? Does this sin uh, meet the requirements of this sacrifice? Does this sacrifice cover this sin? Their conscience was never quite clear because the atonement process was always and forever it was, it was ritualistic for them. They were constantly making sacrifices for their sins. But here's the true nature that we just have to get to. Last week, we had to sit in the weight of our sin. This, this week, we have to sit in the presence of God. That the two degrees of separation no longer exist. That the holiness of God that could not let men get close to him now resides in us. And then what is our response? So if this is true, if that's what Christ did for us, what then is our response? But, but we have to see real quick before we dive into that, the character and nature of God at display here. Because if we're not careful, we'll fall into this lie. And there's been books written about it and it's become a theme over this last couple years that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. That, that we should unhitch, these are different things, different categories here. And we have to be really careful because that's blatant heresy. God is God, he never changes, he never sways. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is God. So what can we learn from the Old Testament about the character and nature of God that remains true as we think about the holiness pursuing God in the New Testament? Well, here are a few things. First, God desires people to approach him. We just have to see this straight out the gate. The holy of holies, the perfect God of the universe, actually desires that sinful men and women would approach him. He desires that men and women would come to him. Now, now we see Jesus in the New Testament. Let the kids come to me. We see him spending time with uh, all the sinners. We see him spending time with the people that, that no one, the deplorables, that no one would want to spend time with. So we understand this concept from Jesus, but do we actually see this from God? And that is the tabernacle. 
That is the point of the tabernacle, that he has created a system that he desires his people to come to him. If he didn't, then why would he go through all this trouble of saying, hey, here's how you do it, here's what it looks like, here's what it should be decorated by, here's how you sacrifice for this, here's how you sacrifice for this. If he did not desire for his people to come to him, then Exodus is a joke. Leviticus is a joke. Deuteronomy should not have been written. But he desires that the people would come to him. And secondly, even though God is particular about the people, how the people approach him, he tells us how. So yes, he is particular because he is holy. We are sinful. He has a particular way for the people of God to approach him. But he tells us. He tells us. Now, now listen, this is no little thing for us to glance over. Because all of us have been in that, maybe it was an employer, maybe it was a friend, maybe at some point in your marriage it was your spouse. But that opportunity where you knew you needed to do something, but they would not tell you what it is. And it was constant disappointment, constant like nagging, well you didn't do this right, well you didn't do this right. Well just tell me what to do and I will do it. Anybody else been there? If, if you love, if you want this done right, just, just give me instructions and I, I will gladly do it to your specifications. But if you don't tell me anything, how can I? And I think this is what David meant by he delighted in the law. He stayed up at night thinking about, dreaming about the law. Because God gave him and he loves us enough to give us the details of what it looks like. But this brings us to this massive um, train wreck that we are at. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. I mean, this is forever and always going to be the clash that we're going to experience. And so when I say holiness of God, what does this mean? First, the holiness of God means that God is 100% unique. Exodus 15.11 says it this way. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So holy in the Hebrew language means to be marked off, withdrawn from common and ordinary use. So God is fully set apart. He is fully unique. But he's also, his holiness has to do with his moral purity and goodness. Habakkuk says it this way. You who are pure, uh, you who have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy as I am holy. Thus for humans, our sinfulness which fights against holiness constitutes the biggest problem. So all of the language of the tabernacle, all of this for us is to show us the sinfulness of men, which we talked about last week, and the pure holiness of God. So as we start to think through, as we start to put ourselves in redemptive history, and what I mean by that is as, the, as God has moved through saving the people, we see the exodus out of Egypt, we see the law committed, we see the tabernacle, um, all the way into the new covenant, Christ came, Christ died. Now we live in this already but not yet where Christ is going to return again one day, refine the world by fire and start over. Here we are in the history of God. And we have access. We have full access to the holiness of God. We have full presence to the power of God. 
something that those in the Old Covenant cannot even dream about. And for us, this is where we see Matthew 27, which I'm not going to jump ahead too much because Dylan's going to cover this next week. But Matthew 27, 50 through uh, really 51. This is Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What, t- what curtain was this? Well, it was the veil of the Holy of Holies symbolizing now that Christ is with God, now that Christ has resurrected, he has defeated sin, he's defeated death, he's walked into the Holy of Holies and put his blood on the ground once and all, atoning our sins forever. The presence of God is no longer confined to this one space, but it's in the heart of the believers. The holiness of God is in us, with us, pursuing us, has purchased us, and will never leave us true sons and daughters of God. But the question remains, do we believe that? I mean, if we had to explain that, if we somehow brought Joshua, right, in a time machine to this present day and had to explain to him how we walk in the freedom of Christ because the presence of God is with us forever and always, how would we elaborate that? How would we explain that to him who has no framework for that? And my thought is, we couldn't because we minimize the holiness of God and we minimize the sinfulness of man. We minimize the presence and the power of who God is all the while minimizing the weight and destruction of our sin. So we're lowering the bar on every account. And if I can just oversimplify this, I think there's two reasons. The first, I think, is just pure laziness. I think the way that we pursue God, the holiness that we should have in us because of who God is, we're just lazy. Now, you've, I've been here for seven years now. You've probably heard me share this story before. Uh, but I just have this holy angst in me, just about a few things. Not a lot, I'm not an angry guy. My wife would say I am. I'm not. But there's just a few things that make me really, really angry. Like, I I went off last week. Uh, Little boys that pretend to be men really make me angry. It just just drives me crazy. I'm I'm busy. Listen, bro, I have a full-time job. I have a part-time job. I have four kids. I'm doing seminary. I have three kids in sports. Keep Keep your busyness at home. Be a man. That's what men do. We work. And we work hard. Sorry, I'm getting mad. I don't, I'm happy. Here's the other thing that makes me mad, right? Uh, raise your hand if you remember, this was probably five, six years ago, the shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Do I remember that t-shirt? All right. That just makes me furious. If I had the power in me to get all of those shirts and have just like an old-fashioned book burning, I would. Because that is the most ludicrous idea. And this is what I mean when I say the culture is just turned lazy, that Jesus is just my friend that I invite him into when I want to, but we forget the holiness, the power, the supremacy of who Christ is. So we just approach God as just this convenient thing for us when we need it because he's just my homeboy, he's just my bro, but we totally disregard the holiness and the power of who God is. We miss it. Because we have no framework for the tabernacle. We have no framework for our entire life. We could go without ever being in the presence of God. 
Our entire life, we would be two steps removed. Maybe we could get into the courtyard, but we're never getting into the holy place, and we're never, ever, ever getting into the most holy place. We're never getting close enough to the holiness of God. We're always two, three steps removed. We forget that. And now that we're in church, we're believers. Yeah, God is holy. Jesus, I'm a homeboy. Let's just go hang out. No. We cannot approach the holiness of God with this lackadaisical, lazy attitude. We must understand the power of who he is. Maybe let me put it this way. So this afternoon I'm going to a wedding um, because you guys get married a lot. Um, And now evidently we're moving into the next season where you guys reproduce a lot, uh, which is great. I love both of them. But we're, we're going to this wedding. My wife and I, we're pawning off all the kids because kids at weddings is just no fun. Can I get a witness? Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, so, so we're pawning off the kids. We're going to have this little. But, but here, here's what I know, right? Uh, I, we were invited into this wedding. We received a formal invitation in the mail we were invited into. So, so it's not up to me what I wear, because I was invited, and it says on the invitation, formal wear. It's not up to me what time I show up, because I was invited, and it says on there, 4.30. It's not up to me where I go for this wedding, because I was invited, so I'm going to somewhere in Cleveland. It's not up to me what I'm eating because I was invited. Are you tracking with this? When we're invited into a relationship with God, it's not on our terms. We don't get to decide what we do and what we don't do. We don't get to decide what we wear and what we don't wear. If we're invited into this relationship with the most holy King of kings, Lord of lords, God of the universe, nothing is up to us. It's strictly up to the God who invited us in. So you're saying that we don't have a say, Pastor? It's exactly what I'm saying. But I'm also saying that's the best thing for you because Proverbs would say there's a way that seems right to us and in the end it leads to death. It would also, I mean, we could even take the Bible out of it for a second. Tell me the last great idea that you thought was going to be a million dollar idea that failed tremendously. Now tell me the last time God had that happen to him. Never. So when we're invited into the holiness, the holy relationship with God, it's not on your terms. Which leads us into the next part. If it's not laziness, it's we've got to pursue holiness. We've got to pursue holiness. God, just in the Old Testament, how he gives them specific instructions on worship and what does it look like, he gives us specific instructions on how to pursue holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Because the presence of God is not in this one space. The presence of God is everywhere. The presence of God is in us and with us constantly. Forget Elf on the Shelf. God is here and he's watching. So we must be pursuing holiness for the sake of godliness. And Jesus gives us huge clues of what this would look like for us. And maybe let's start with what holiness isn't. We see that holiness does not mean the suppression of emotions. Jesus was angry. Jesus was frustrated. Jesus wept. Jesus was excited. So holiness does not mean the suppression of emotions. Holiness does not mean that we must separate from sinners. That was the Pharisees' move. That wasn't our move. 
because that's who we are at the heart of blessed Christ saves us. Holiness does not mean the denial of all earthly things, walking with one's head in the clouds. It's not what holiness looks like. We see that holiness does not mean a wholeness involving separation from sin and submission to the will of the Father. J.I. Packer, in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, puts it this way, and I think it'll be on the screen. Genuine holiness is genuine Christ-likeness, and genuine Christ-likeness is genuine humanness. The only genuine humanness there is, love in the service of God and others, humility and meekness under the divine hand, integrity of behavior and expressing integration of character, wisdom with faithfulness, boldness with prayerfulness, sorrow at people's sin, joy at the Father's goodness, and single-mindedness and seeking to please the Father morning, noon, and night were all qualities seen in Christ, the perfect man. It's this twin issues that we have, sin and submission, constantly fighting one another. Pursuing sin or pursuing holiness. And, and maybe here's, here's some excuses that we might use so, so that we don't have to pursue holiness. Weakness. Oh, I'm just not very good at that. That's an excuse. Mistakes. I didn't mean to do that. That's an excuse. Social outcomes. Because of my background, I can't help but to do this. That's an excuse. Relational difficulties, it's really her fault, you know. That's an excuse, all the way back to the garden. Or non-issues, trying to redefine, is that really sin? Is that really what God says? We would like for God in the Bible to get up and call sin by a different name. It's not really sin, it's just an unfortunate circumstance. Now listen, I am like you and understand the weight of sin. This is not a message for to me to Bible beat you down, stop sinning or else. This is a message for us as the body of Christ to spur one another to good works, to pursue holiness, to remember and to remind one another that God is not in the Holy of Holies. That the veil has been torn and the presence of God is with us, which also means the power of God is with us, which also means the sin can be defeated. That also means that we can spur one another on to good works, which also means that we should be a city on a hill within Nilanago, which also means that the big picture vision of the church should be that there would be no need ever whatsoever within the city of Nilanago. Why? Because of us. Because the church does what the church does, and we take care of needs. The church loves, not because we are trying to earn God's holiness, but because the power of Christ is in us, and if Christ has loved us as much as he has, we must go love one another. We should spur one another. We should push one another to holiness, and that is going to make us look so strange. It's going to make us stick out like a sore thumb. The love that we have first for one another, but secondly for the community around us will make us look difficult but A.W. Tozer puts it this way. Much of our difficulty 
stems for our, from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and bring him nearer to our own image. So as we close, here's my question for you. Have you sat and thought about the presence of God in your soul? Have you considered what it means for us to have the holiness of God in our hearts, at our disposal, the presence of God with us forever? Does it make more sense And as we jump back to Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do we understand what it looks like that we have that access to the most holy God? You guys have probably seen this, but Tim Keller had this quote a couple years ago that sums all this up perfectly. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. We have that access to God. But do we believe it? Do we walk in it? So let us have that access, but let us remember that God is holy. So let us access our Father, our King, with respect that He deserves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for where you have us in in this season of redemptive history. God, that we've never known anything different than having full access to you whenever we need it. That we've never not known your presence to be with us. That we've never had to doubt or wonder if our sins would be forgiven because of what your son did for us on the cross. Our conscience is clear. Our sins are forgiven and we have full access to you forever. Our conscience is clear. Our sins are forgiven. We have full access to you, the holy God, forever. Father, would you forgive us for when we take that for granted? Would you forgive us for when we don't understand the weight of that? When we don't understand the severity of of that promise? When we unknowingly or knowingly belittle who you are and what you've done on our behalf. But God, would we rightly understand your holiness? Would we rightly pursue holiness? And would we understand who you are, that you desire a relationship with us, that you've made a way when there was no way, that you're not hiding from us, running from us, keeping us at arm's distance, but you're welcoming us in to the family of God. Let us do that rightly, with all respect, with all honor, and let that forever change us, change the church, change our county, change our state, and change our world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.